Welcome to the Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast, which features Barry Dunn Healthcare Practice Group professionals and expert guests discussing their insights into contemporary as well as perennial healthcare regulatory, revenue integrity, general compliance, and risk management topics. My name is Robin Hoffman, and I'm a senior manager in compliance and credentialing in Barry Dunn's healthcare practice group. I am very pleased to be joined today by two colleagues, senior manager Mary Dows and manager Roger Rigo. The title of our podcast is Checks and Balances 2.0, Payroll and Time and Effort Documentation for Grant-Funded Programs. We've dubbed this podcast 2.0 because it follows up on a prior podcast in which we address the importance of checks and balances or controls within healthcare organizations. We promise to come back to you, our listeners, with a podcast focusing on internal controls pertaining to payroll and time and effort reporting for grant-funded programs. But before we get into our discussion, a quick disclaimer. The content we discuss in this podcast is based on our professional experience advising healthcare providers, facilities, and other organizations that engage Barry Dunn for compliance and other services. While we may reference specific government programs, Medicare and Medicaid policies, and regulatory guidance, we do not speak for any government agency or contractor nor do we have the authority to do so. Nothing in this podcast should be considered legal advice. Anyone seeking legal advice on the subjects we discuss should consult their own attorney. Now I'd like to introduce my colleagues. First, I'll introduce Mary Dows, who is a certified public accountant and a leader in Barry Dunn's Community Health Center practice area. In addition to providing audit services for federally qualified health centers and rural health clinics throughout the United States, Mary has authored several articles for Barry Dunn focusing on provider relief funding audits. Mary, thanks so much for taking the time to join us in today's podcast. Before we launch our discussion that focuses on checks and balances, Would you offer our listeners a brief description of some of the other services that you provide for Barry Dunn's clients? Thank you, Robin. So I provide audit services. I also do cost report and reimbursement for federally qualified health centers and lookalikes. I am involved in 340B compliance reviews and audits, and also just general consulting for the health centers related to Medicare, Medicaid, HRSA specific policies and guidelines. Now I'd like to introduce our colleague, Roger Rigo. Roger, you bring over 30 years of experience from the not-for-profit healthcare sector to Barry Dunn and our clients. You've worked in a federally qualified health center, and in hospital settings. You've also worked for Medicare and TRICARE, and you have experience in program integrity in government-funded health programs. We're thrilled to have you join us in today's podcast. Roger, could you please share with our listeners what types of services you offer Barry Dunn's clients? Sure, and thanks, Robin. Great to be here. 
Uh, some of the services that I, I work on are, you know, we do interim management. So going in and replacing somebody who's, uh, you know, they're trying to fill could be a CFO level, could be a manager director level. Also do a lot of optimizations through the revenue cycle. Uh, expertise is, you know, from the front and the back end. So patient access, coding, uh, business office, and doing anything around the revenue cycle. So we can uh, come in and do an analysis, do a quick assessment on denial management, um, increasing AR, uh, denials, anything that goes with, you know, getting information from patients and anything that's around the revenue cycle, really. So um, that's that's what we do. Thank you so much. Recently, Mary, Roger, and I were talking about important internal controls and the segregation of duties that pertain to payroll, particularly in smaller healthcare organizations. Mary, I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners some examples of the different approaches to processing payroll that you've observed, and are there safeguards that you would recommend for our listeners? Absolutely, Robin. One of the best ways to segregate the responsibilities within the payroll process is to utilize the payroll software. And if there is an HR module for the payroll software, that HR manages and maintains the employee-related elements. So employees, hires, terms, um, pay rate changes, all of those wonderful elements that are employee related. And then on the payroll side, the individuals in the payroll department only have access to time entry and that anything that's related to pay rates and employee hires and terminations that the people in the payroll department do not have access to those edits because it's very easy to continue to pay a terminated employee. It's very easy to change the bank routing number for a terminated employee so that those that pay can continue to be done. And if you segregate the HR element with the hires and the terminations from the payroll processing function, you help to close that gap. Thanks so much, Mary. That's really, really important advice. And Roger, when we were talking with Mary recently, you know, you you referred to your experience having been a chief financial officer in a federally qualified health center. Also, as we talked about earlier, you've worked in program integrity activities on the payer side. And when we were chatting with Mary recently, you mentioned that in your prior work experience, you had set up what you referred to, and I love this, as a system of quadruple checks in which uh, the number of sign-offs across leadership within the health center um, was established. And I'm wondering if you can uh, talk a little bit about that quadruple checking process and if there are any other ways to really minimize the likelihood for any potential embezzlement. Yeah, sure. Great question. Great, great topic. And, you know, just to kind of follow up with Mary, you know, the, the recommendations that she has for payroll and um, HR and dividing that is really critical. But unfortunately, you know, especially in you know, my experience, I worked in FQHC was small and we didn't have an HR department and a payroll department. And, you know, finance was small also. So, there was a lot of people touching a lot of things. And 
that really becomes an issue and it's something that you have to be very aware of in the FQHC world because you get audited on an annual basis and you need to be able to show that, you know, the person who's doing payroll isn't the one who's entering it in the system, who isn't doing this and that. And the only way to do those kind of things is to have a ridiculous amount of checks. And we called it the quadruple check. And sometimes it's, you know, a double check or a triple check. But there are times where we would actually have, uh, you know, like with payroll, there was four of us that touched it. But there was, you know, nobody really had total control. So we had to show exactly what we were doing to the auditors. And of course, the recommendation is it would be a lot better if you had a department doing this and a department doing that. But again, small organizations can't afford to do that. So what we did is we basically just made sure that everything that we did had to have more than one sign off. So if we were going to do, you know, before we went to uh, electric, you know, like uh, deposits into the bank, you know, electronic deposits, uh, you know, there was checks. And the only way to make sure that checks were being done correctly was we had somebody who created the check and then somebody who verified the check. And then we had somebody who signed the check and then the person who mailed the check. And if it hit enough people, you know, the quadruple, then we could at least show that we did everything we could to make sure that the, you know, a payment wouldn't go out incorrectly. But again, if a person's on vacation or if a people would, couple of employees would leave, it makes it a lot difficult. But you have to put those kind of checks in. If, if you don't, you know, like Mary said, it's so easy to change a routing number. It's so easy to pay an old employee, to pay a vendor. Um, that may not even exist. And you got to have those checks. So Roger, what was your process for employee rate changes, given your small finance department? Like that's the most significant and hires and terminations and employee rate changes. What was your process for that? Yeah, our, uh, our HR uh, director, she was the one who handled the pay rates, but then those had to also be seen by the executive director and myself. So it wasn't like somebody could just give a pay raise that went through literally an executive team decision on what was going to happen. Even annual increases had to be an executive decision and then go through the board. But then when we actually made the changes, one person made the change in the system, but everybody knew that it was happening. And then when I would look at payroll every week or every two weeks, I would see where the changes are because our financial system, our payroll system would actually say, this person increased or this person decreased or this person is no longer there. So that's how we were able to kind of make sure that if a pay increase went through, three of us knew about it. And Robin, I know I'm stealing your thunder with this moderation of the podcast, but most commonly the comments that we have for new clients that we've been bringing on specifically related to the payroll process and appropriate approvals has been somebody has been approving a pre-payroll processing payroll register. So the payroll's been entered into the system, all the reports have been generated. An individual is designated to review and approve that payroll. Then it goes back to the payroll clerk to process and nobody was validating that what was presented to them for approval for pay agreed to what was actually submitted for processing and payment. And so that leaves the opportunity for somebody to edit a pay rate, to add hours, do a retroactive pay to somebody and not that not get caught because 
batch totals from that initial pre-processing payroll register were not compared and verified to the post-processing payroll register. And that has been the most common comment that we've had for a lot of new clients to Barry Dunn. That's really helpful information. So it sounds like that is a way to really minimize risk by taking that step. Absolutely. It closes a gap. Yes, exactly. Perfect. You know, as as we were chatting recently, we talked about the fact that with the COVID-19 pandemic, there was, I think of it as like basically a cascade or a wave or a flood, if you will, of grant funded opportunities from both federal and state governments to really deal with what was um you know, something that none of us had ever experienced before in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm wondering, um, when you're thinking about grant-funded programs, what are some of your recommendations, Mary and Roger, for dealing with time and effort reporting to avoid the appearance of double-dipping on grants? And how should healthcare organizations really establish tracking mechanisms when they have a series of multiple grants. Time and effort reporting is really important and it's it's high on the OIG's purview and radar and there have been recent audits both of the COVID funds and when we go back to some of the the supplemental funds that the health centers got back a few years ago with specifically the Ames grant and in both instances there's been in they've identified where lack of appropriate time and effort reporting and verification of double dipping was not done on behalf of the health center and so there there's going to be increased scrutiny on this moving forward definitely and the health centers experience a very significant challenge and i know roger you can speak more specifically to this and in the the nuts and bolts of it within an actual finance department but health centers most often will charge their salaries to grants based off of budgeted amounts that's allowed on an interim basis but there has to be a reconciliation and a verification that that budget amount is accurate and that needs to be documented and so a lot of organizations that i work with do use budgeted amounts within the payroll software but they are instituting a routine review process to say mary smith is still working on project x 20 hours a week so this allocation within the payroll software was accurate um robin jane transferred she's working on project c so we need to change that allocation and move her to this new group and that gets documented and the biggest piece that we're recommending is if that's done through the payroll system and you have a process of implementing a payroll change form for pay rate changes additions of employees terminations of employees those allocations should also be documented on a pay uh, on a change payroll change form and that goes through the review and approval process and so that way you have that that audit documentation to support that if you are using budgeted numbers you've validated that they're accurate great great and roger from where you sat in a finance department i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the uh, time and effort reporting documentation yeah i mean you know as we were saying covid really kind of made us uh look at business a lot differently than what we did before 
And, you know, because usually a lot of FQHCs have grants, but it's usually just the, you know, their SAC grant or whatever is some easier things to monitor. Um, then when COVID came and all these funds came in, it really kind of changed the way that I even looked at grant reporting or tracking. And, you know, with payroll is, is a big one. And with anything, I mean, you've got to have, you know, the quadruple checks. But I mean, you have to have the ability to track exactly what's going on, whether it's payroll or anything else. And, you know, Mary talked about it being in the payroll system. But, you know, when I was in the FQHC, that wasn't enough for me. I had to have a spreadsheet that I could, you know, I did it for my auditors. You know, I'm not an auditor by any means, but I know their job and I wanted it to be as easy as possible because when they come in to take a look at something, you, you need to make sure that it's accurate. You don't want to have to explain a thousand things and then try to come up with things down. So we would, we created, I basically created some spreadsheets for all those grants that I track. So I can make sure that if employee A was on this grant, that they couldn't show up in another grant. You know, just making sure that you could break that apart. We also did it through payroll. I mean, it's not like payroll wasn't there, but we want to have a double check because, you know, the auditor come in and say, you know, I need to see the payroll. I want to see how it rectifies against your grants and things like that. And I want to be able to say, here's our payroll. But along with that, Here's a document that shows each person that was done, how it was broke out. And we didn't use budget. We used actual. So if an employee, you know, made $1,000 and they're part of that budgeted amount from the original thing, that $1,000 went in there. And then we would watch that through the grant and resolve it towards the end to make sure that it balanced out to the budget that we submitted to HRSA. Um, but, you know, again, it's you can't rely on one thing. And I know a lot of people do, but my recommendation is always to have a second layer so that you can show exactly what you did. And, you know, Mary brought up, you know, the, the scrutiny that's going on with all these grants. And when the grants first came out, it's like, oh, here's some free money. And, you know, one of the states that I know said, we're not even going to audit this. You know, here's your money. But then three months later, they said, you need to prove to me how you spent all this money. And we're like, but you said we didn't have to. So there was a lot of people that caught, got caught not tracking it. Me, I knew they're I knew that that was too good to be true. <laughs> Absolutely. So, <I> tracked it. <laughs> so that when they came to me, I'm like, here you go. Here's, here's what we've done in the first three months. But I, that's why I say you, you almost have to think about what's a double check or what's something that can back up any information because you just can't relay rely on a system because what happens if something happens to your system right right you, you gotta have that backup so i mean that's the critical piece so robin there's actually something that's just come to the forefront with some of the clients that i'm working with where this is actually a challenge with making sure that there's not double dipping and not charging the same salary to multiple grant programs and that's for organizations that are utilizing a federal indirect rate or an unofficial indirect rate so the individuals that are in your indirect rate pool, those are now carved out of being able to be charged to direct to any program. And that's not obvious to folks. And we're having a conversation later this week with um, a client specifically about this matter, because we have to kind of think through what are some alternatives and how do we set up policies and procedures and processes for identifying these individuals and then also using that to go forward to make sure that they're not put into a grant 
being charged direct and that everybody that goes through that grant writing process is aware of this because oftentimes finance is separate from grant writing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, a few minutes ago, Mary, you made a reference to an Office of the Inspector General audit that had been published in November of 2020. That was the one that focused on what in Health Center World we called the AIMS grant, which was Access Increases in Mental Health and Substance Abuse Service Grants. Um, and the OIG in that study, they looked at 100 health centers that received AIMS grants, and 67 in that sample did not use the funds in accordance with the AIMS grant requirements. And just today, there was, as, as you said, this is all, this cascade is all unfolding. There is a brand new OIG study, which has just been published this month, and it's looking at what Roger was alluding to with all of that federal money, the supplemental grant funding um, that came with COVID-19, that the OIG looked at 30 health centers that were in uh, counties or jurisdictions which had very, very high rates of COVID and that were receiving large, large uh, increases in funding. And they found that 17 of the 30 health centers did not use their HRSA COVID-19 supplemental grant funding in accordance with the federal requirements. I'm wondering if you all are aware of any other, I think of them as cautionary tales um, for our listeners in terms of um, what do you do when something new comes forward, like the COVID, for instance, um, the COVID money? Like, how do you really work with clients um, and health centers to really inform them about how to set up systems so that two years later, somebody's not asking them for this information? Well, really, Robin, all of the conversation and the comments and the discussion that we've had today is really the conversations that we have with our clients. And we, we talk about the risks. We talk about best practices. What's your system? What are your system limitations? And how can you implement alternatives to still meet the requirements and have that auditable documentation within the system limitations that you might have? Excellent. Roger, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'd really add to that, you know, being I was in the FQHC world when the, these funds came out or when any grant came around, you got to know the grant. And, you know, with the with the COVID dollars, it was a little bit different because some of it kind of like came before, you know, the, the horse became or the, the wagon was in front of the horse uh, versus, you know, the normal way that grants, you know, you would write a grant, get the money and you know, do a budget, but this was, you got the money, then you did a budget and reported. So it was, it was very odd. But again, whenever, it, and it doesn't matter what grant it is, if a grant is coming out, you got to read what the rules are to it specifically and not just assume. And if you start to assume, then you need to reach, need to reach out to your grants man management specialist to get that information or to like a Mary um, you know, with your, if you have an auditor and get their feel for what it is, if they know the research, but not every auditor is up on HRSA regulations. Um, so you have to go to somebody who knows it. And I always recommend going back to HRSA or, you know, primary care association. A lot of times they get together and do the research and you got to know it because, you know, you're talking about the mental health one, you know, and with recruiting these days, it's not easy to get 
behavioral health, you know, uh, specialist, and you get this money and you don't have anybody that, you know, to use the grant for. So you got to make sure that you're not pulling money for a person you don't have yet. Um, so it's just really knowing what that grant is. I, I, I can't uh, stress that enough. You've yep. got to know what the grant is. So one thing that I want to point out, and I'm not sure everybody is aware of this, but the very first notice of grant award that you get for new funding outlines all the terms and conditions and program specific requirements. And if there's any specifically prohibited uses of the funds, they're very clearly outlined in that first NOA. We have a number of health centers that we work with that the finance team and the individuals responsible for grant reporting and tracking are not reading the terms and conditions of the NOA. They get the email notification that just has the first page of the NOA and that the, the terms and conditions are not in that email attachment. You actually have to go into EHB to download the full NOA to get those terms and conditions. And it's very important that, that those be read because you can easily get out of compliance with the grant when you don't read those terms and conditions. Very, very true. As, as we're wrapping up our conversation today, I, I would like to ask Mary and Roger if they can each offer our listeners two critical high-priority recommendations for any healthcare organization that wants to implement enhanced controls for processing payroll and for documenting time and effort reporting in grant-funded programs. So, Mary, Mary I'll turn to you first if, if you can offer two recommendations. Two recommendations. The first is... I agree 100% with Roger with having the dual tracking. You need to have a tracking mechanism to be able to support the expenses that are being charged to a grant and also support that the salary is not being charged to multiple programs. The same salary is not being charged to multiple programs and that the salary is not in excess of the executive level two limits. Um, that's quite important. And then if you are using budgets for your rep versus actual time records for your allocation to the grants, you need to implement a routine verification that those budgets are accurate and have that documented. And you want to get on that and do that as soon as possible if you're not. Excellent. And, you know, when you said that about the not exceeding the executive level threshold, that was one of the findings in this latest OIG audit that came out in May, where they looked at the health centers and the use of the COVID supplemental grant funding. So definitely that was a finding with at least one health center. Roger, I'm wondering if you can give us um, your thoughts about two critical high priority recommendations that could be um, acted on. Yeah, and it's, it's just basically some of the things that we've talked about. You know, again, when it comes to grants, you know, and this is really on the FQHC side, you got to know your grant. Um, if it's a grant where you get the funds first and you get the documentation later, make sure that you're looking at it. I don't know how much that's ever going to happen again, but you, you never know. Um, otherwise, you know, like Mary was saying with the NOA, you got to you got to know what the is connected to the grant. And you should be doing that when you're writing the grant, knowing exactly what it is and have that kind of planned out so that you never really have to worry about the compliance issue. There's nothing that's really a surprise. Um, the one thing I do recommend is that, you know, in the FQHC world, if you have questions, especially when it comes to payroll and documentation and double checks and things like that, is work with your auditor. Mm -hmm. You know, I 
always want to be my auditor other than the time when they came in to do my documents, you know, to go through the audit. I wanted to see them months in advance or anytime we had a change. This is changing. Does this impact our audit? And that's where it's really important when it comes to grants. If you have a question, don't assume. And I always use that word, don't assume, or two <laughs> words, don't assume, because you just never know. Ask the question. You have lots of people you can go to. You can go to HRSA and you can go to your auditors. Um, and if you're not an FQHC, again, double checks. Do not assume everything is fine. You know, kind of like Mary talked about with payroll. If, you know, a person does payroll, great, but then if it can be changed at a, you know, a later date, you know, the next day or the next person, that doesn't work. You got to have, you know, controls and it can't just be one control. It really should be, you know, it never hurts to overdo it because you're only saving yourself, you know, pain down the road. Thank and you. Roger, I sorry, Robin, Roger, I no. just want to follow up from the audit side of that. We appreciate when our clients reach out as questions arise so that they're and that they're proactive and they ask those questions along the way versus waiting to the time of the audit, because then it makes things less smooth and it can potentially result in audit findings, because at least for the federally qualified health centers, we have to do a uniform guidance audit and we have to test internal controls and we have to do additional layers and there's more risk. And if things are not correct, that could potentially result in a finding. Thank you, Mary, because I, I was uh, I was watching your body language. You were vigorously shaking your head when Roger said, reach out to your auditor. And I think that that's an important thing to reiterate is I think sometimes, particularly for folks who maybe they've never been a chief financial officer before, or maybe they're new in the finance profession, they may perhaps feel a little reticence about reaching out to the auditor with those kinds of questions or to seek that kind of guidance. So thank you for confirming that that is absolutely acceptable behavior and it's recommended actually. So that's that's great to reinforce. Well, I would like to thank Mary and Roger. I think that this has been a really informative session today. We've reached the conclusion of the podcast about checks and balances 2.0. So I would like to um, thank you both. And on behalf of Mary, Roger, and myself, we thank you, our listeners, for listening to this episode of Barry Dunn's Healthcare Insights Compliance Plus Ethics equals integrity podcast. We welcome questions from our listeners and we welcome your feedback about the ideas we've discussed in today's podcast. And we are always open and eager to receive any suggestions from our listeners about topics that we should consider for future podcast episodes. So once again, thank you very much. Thank you.